Hi, friends. My name is Amanda Morris, and I am your host for the Creeped and Curious podcast. First of all, I want to say I hope everybody had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I also want to say I'm very excited to be doing this today. I'm getting over some kind of virus. Uh, Luckily, it's not COVID, but I thought I was going to be able to do a bonus episode this week, but because I wasn't feeling my best, I unfortunately wasn't able to do that. However, I am releasing this episode early, so there's that at least. I am very excited about the story I have for you today. We are going to be discussing one of the most shocking stories of alien abduction, a story so shocking because there were six witnesses to this abduction, and the events we are about to unravel have never been able to be fully debunked. We are going to be talking about the extraterrestrial abduction of Travis Walton. On November 5th of 1975 in Apache Sitgraves National Forest in central Arizona, it was a seemingly normal workday for Travis Walton and his six co-workers who had been working on the Turkey Springs tree thinning contract. Tree thinning is a tedious process where tree branches that are growing too close to other tree branches, those are removed. And this process is actually very important to the health and growth of a forest. Just to give you an idea of what kind of work these guys were doing. So after a long and laboring day of work, the men pile up in the pickup truck that they had all driven to work in together that day. And Travis's boss, Mike, was driving. Travis was in the front passenger seat. And another worker named Ken sat in the front middle, and the four other men sat in the back. According to Travis, this was their usual seating arrangement with smokers in the back and non-smokers in the front. It was 6.10 p.m. once they got on the road, meaning they should have arrived home before 7.30 p.m. Travis recalls the men, like, cracking jokes about the clunking noises coming from the old pickup truck, And it was at that moment that Travis's eyes caught a blinding bright light between the trees, approximately 100 yards yards away. At first, he thought it was the sun setting until he remembered the time, and the sun had set 30 minutes earlier. So then he's just like trying to figure out what this light could be. He thinks maybe they're headlights or that there had been a fire. And at this point, the other men in the truck had seen it too, and they were just completely silent. Everybody in the truck was just silent. They continued driving up the road, and as they're passing the trees, they're getting little glimpses of the light source, but can't really see much. One of the men thinks it's possibly like a crashed plane in the trees. So the men are just feeling really excited at this point, and they just keep driving, and they drive right up to the direct source of this strange light when one of the men yells, quote, my God, it's a flying saucer, unquote. So Mike turns off the truck and all the men are just completely captivated by what they're witnessing. Directly in front of them and less than 30 yards away, hovering about 20 feet above the ground is a golden disc-shaped spacecraft. The craft was said by the witnesses to be silent and stationary, just eerily hovering right below the treetops. They said the craft gave off an illuminating soft yellow haze that lit up the immediate area. And under the light, the trees and the brush and the grass, it took on various different colors and hues that were 
far from their natural colors. They said the spacecraft had an estimated overall diameter of 15 to 20 feet and had a shape like two pie pans pressed together with a small round bowl placed upside down on the top. They said there were no antennas or protrusions of any kind. It was very smooth in texture and the craft had no visible windows. Travis says as his co-workers are just all stricken by what they're seeing, he's just hit with this strong urgency to get a closer look to the saucer. So he gets out and he starts walking towards the ship. I read somewhere else that Travis had actually made a pact with his brother when they were younger that if they ever saw a spacecraft of any kind that they would approach it. But the men in the truck are like, freaking out at this point and they're just yelling at Travis like what in the world are you thinking and Travis even says at that moment he remembers stopping and looking at them and thinking about going back to the truck but Travis admits he was honestly scared it was going to fly away and he was going to miss out on the experience of a lifetime so he continues to walk towards the craft which also side note my husband Ben and I were actually recently talking about what we would do if we ever encountered a spacecraft. And we both agreed we would probably approach it. So I honestly totally understand why Travis would do this. Like it really is a once in a lifetime experience. So Travis says he walked directly into the dim circular halo on the ground and he looks up and he's about six feet directly under this spacecraft. Travis says he remembers hearing a assortment of strange, like, low and high-pitched beeping sounds. He said it was unlike anything he had ever heard. At this point, Travis remembers hearing Mike yelling at him to get away from the saucer, and that's when the sounds coming from the craft get incredibly loud, and it sounded like the generators inside were starting back up. Travis gets into a crouched position and then a bright blue-green ray of light or bolt of electricity or energy or something comes from the bottom of the craft and it hits Travis. Travis says he remembers feeling a pain in his head and his chest. So Travis says in this moment he felt like he had just been electrocuted. He remembers hearing a cracking or popping sound and then he just blacks out completely. So Travis has no idea what is happening right now. He is completely unconscious, but the men in the truck say that after Travis is knocked out by the beam of energy, he was just laying there completely limp and they were sure he was dead. So they got out of there as quickly as possible. However, as the men are driving down the road in pure panic and they're just terrified and they're feeling like this thing may be following them, they end up getting into an argument about whether or not to go back and get Travis. They decided to make a fire where they currently were and whoever didn't want to go could stay there. As Mike is preparing for this, he claims to have seen this golden disc fly above the tree line and then just out of sight at incredible speed. All the men do end up going back to the site because they were just scared to stay there by themselves. And apparently they still continued to argue about it most of the way back. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, I'm sure being in that truck was much better than being vulnerable and alone in those woods. When the men arrive back to the site, they use their headlights from the truck and a flashlight to look for Travis, 
who is nowhere to be seen. They looked all over the area and they yelled his name, but there was no sign of Travis and there was no indication of any strange object or anything having ever been there. The men don't know what more to do, so they decide to just head back home and contact police. Massive's search party set out looking for Travis, but it wasn't until five days after his abduction that Travis shows up in a nearby town. Travis says he remembers waking up and feeling cold pavement on his skin. He was on his stomach with his head on his right forearm, just on the side of the road. He says as he lifts his head, he briefly sees a bright light that disappears quickly and then he saw the outline of a silvery disc hovering about four feet above the pavement. He says the craft had to have been at least 40 feet in diameter because it was bigger than the width of the road. He says the craft shoots vertically into the sky and was almost instantly lost from sight. Travis gathers enough energy to stand up and he just begins running. He makes it to the Union 76 service station and frantically knocks on the doors but gets no answer. He then continues to run down the highway and he makes it to a row of telephone booths where he calls his sister. Travis's brother-in-law answers the phone and Travis just starts screaming in the phone that they brought him back and he was just begging for someone to come get him. His brother-in-law thinks it's a prank call or a wrong number, so he goes to hang up, and just before he does, Travis says, wait, it's me, it's Travis. So his brother-in-law tells him to stay right there, and he and Travis's brother drive 33 miles to Travis's location. They help Travis get into the truck, and on the way home, Travis tries to tell them what had happened to him, but he just couldn't get it out. At one point, Travis does make a comment about how he must have been unconscious for a couple hours. He was in complete shock when they informed him that he had actually been gone for five days. And what I am about to tell you are the horrifying events that Travis claims took place during those five days. Travis says when he regained consciousness, he was in excruciating pain and felt as if he had been burnt all over on the inside and the outside of his body. Travis says he was lying on his back and he said his tongue tasted bitter and metallic and he was very, very, very thirsty. When Travis opens his eyes, he says his vision is very blurred, but he can make out some kind of light source above him. He says the light is rectangular and about three feet by one and a half feet. And at this time, he realizes that the surface he is lying on is a table of some sort. He then remembers what happened before he lost consciousness, and he assumes that he must be in a hospital. Then Travis recalls feeling something pressing on his chest. He looked down and noticed that his shirt and jacket had been pulled up around his shoulders, and that's when he saw this device made of some kind of shiny metal or plastic, and it's curved around his body. It extended from his armpits to just barely above his belt, and it like curved around each side of his rib cage. Now Travis can see these blurry figures of what he believes at this time are doctors. He says that they had on white masks and caps, but they had on orange gowns. Travis claims his vision returns to normal out of nowhere, and he now realizes that those are not the figures of doctors, at least not human doctors, and he definitely was not in a hospital. Travis claims there were three creatures surrounding him. 
The description that Travis gives is so in-depth and detailed and also very terrifying. He says the creatures had huge brown eyes, were just under five foot tall. They were human in the way that they had two legs, two arms, two hands with five fingers each, and they had a head with two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. They were very thin, white, and had spongy flesh. They had no fingernails, no hair, no eyelashes, no eyebrows, and their skin had no wrinkles and it looked soft. Their heads were much too large for their bodies, and the top portion of their head was larger uh, than the bottom part. So very similar head and body shape of what we pretty much picture aliens to look like. Travis says their features almost looked like those of an infant, like they had tiny noses and their mouths were very thin and narrow. Travis says the creatures were wearing these orange jumpsuits and he says he couldn't see a single grain in the material and they didn't have any seams, no buttons, no zippers, no snaps. Travis freaks out, obviously, so he's just swinging at them with the little energy he has He's yelling at them. He's threatening them. But he says during all of this, they don't say anything at all, not to him or to each other. Oh, and also at some point during this, the device attached to him does break off. And he does make note that there were no wires or anything else attached to him, just whatever that device was. So at this point, he says the aliens just turn around and exit the room. Afraid of their return, Travis begins looking around the room for anything he could use as a weapon. Travis says he didn't recognize anything in the room and was afraid to touch anything without knowing what it might do. So Travis rushes to the door that the aliens exited through and he finds himself in this curving hallway about three feet wide. He turns to the left and just starts running. Travis comes to a room. He actually passes several rooms, but this room he'd peeked in and noticed that it was empty, so he cautiously enters this room, and the room is round. It's about six feet, 16 feet across with a dome ceiling about 10 feet high, and spaced around the room were what looked like three closed doorways. The room was completely empty besides a single chair that was facing away from the doorway, and after slowly and cautiously approaching the chair, Travis finds it to be unoccupied. On the left of the chair was a lever with an oddly shaped handle on top. And on the right arm was a bright lime green screen with a bunch of like black lines that intersected in all different directions. Under the screen was about five vertical rows of buttons and each row was a different color and had approximately five buttons per row. Travis began just pushing the buttons in a panic, but nothing happened, so he goes to one of the rectangles that resembled a closed door, and he just looked around it, looking to see if he could find just anything to help him or figure out, you know, where he even is. And as he goes to walk back to the chair, he hears something, and he turns around to see what looks like to be another human. Travis says the man is about six foot two. He's very muscular, very nice looking, weighing about 200 pounds. He says the man wore a blue suit, black boots, and had a black belt or like a band wrapped around his middle. And he wore some type of clear helmet on his head. 
Travis just runs up to the man and starts just babbling to him. He's just really excited to see another human or at least someone who looked human. And the man just says nothing, but he grabs Travis by the arm and he just gestures for him to go with him. The man leads Travis out of the room and down the narrow hallway. The man leads Travis to a completely empty room where they both stand in silence for what Travis believes is about two minutes. And then the wall parallel from where they entered it just opens. I kind of imagine this room was some type of elevator or something. So Travis says when the door opens, he's just hit with the feel and the smell of fresh air. He says it reminded him of that outside springtime air. Travis walks down a steep ramp, approximately seven to eight feet to the floor, and he realizes he is now outside of the craft, but he's not outside outside. He was in a large, oddly shaped room, and looking at the outside of the craft, Travis says it looked just like the one that had taken him, but it only had a few subtle differences, one being that this craft was significantly larger. The man takes Travis through a set of doors into a hallway about 80 feet long. At the end of the hallway was another set of doors. And upon entering, Travis saw a white room with a table and a chair and three more humans. Travis says there were two men and a woman, all dressed similar to the first, the first man he met, except these people didn't have the helmets. So Travis also says all of these humanoid creatures were incredibly attractive and they had no blemishes, no wrinkles, no freckles, no moles. Travis claims that the woman and one of the men gently grabs his arms and they lift him onto the table. Now, Travis begins to resist and that's when the woman places what looks like an oxygen mask over Travis's face. And before he can do anything, he becomes weak and eventually goes unconscious. Travis's consciousness doesn't come back until he wakes up on the side of the highway. So let's go back a little bit and talk about what was happening on Earth while Travis was gone. With Travis nowhere to be found and his six co-workers being the last to see him, they quickly become persons of interest in what, at this point, law enforcement was considering to be a potential homicide and cover-up. So rumors begin stirring up in town, and the men finally agreed to doing a polygraph test. Okay, so let's talk about polygraph tests. They are not 100% accurate. Researchers suggest that they're actually only believed to be between 80 and to 90% accurate. And I understand why they're used because ultimately they're able to detect lies better than the average person's ability to detect lies. And because science. So polygraphs measure a person's blood pressure, pulse, respiration, and skin conductivity, which when they're acting funky, these physiological indicators can help us detect if someone is lying. But as someone who is incredibly anxious almost all the time just by nature, I would never feel comfortable taking a lie detector test, especially if it's for like a crime or something. Even if I know I'm totally innocent, if there's even a small chance of this test detecting otherwise, yeah, no thanks. And that's also why polygraph tests don't hold up in court. So yeah, the crew takes a polygraph test and they all pass. 
Well, all but one who was said to have walked out halfway through because he had become irritable with some of the questions being asked pertaining to them murdering Travis. So at that time, he failed, but later on, he does pass when he's retested. But as we talked about lie detector tests not being 100% accurate, it is said by researchers that it's incredibly rare for a six. And then later seven, because Travis also takes and passes a polygraph test. But for that many people to pass a polygraph test about the same subject matter, it's just very uncommon if they were lying. So even though polygraphs aren't totally accurate, all of these men passing when being asked the same questions, it's just very interesting. So yeah, that's the story of Travis Walton and his alleged alien abduction. Skeptics have really had fun with this case, but I've read several possible reasonings from skeptics as to what could have happened, and I just personally don't agree. I believe this case. I believe Travis. I think it's amazing the amount of detail that Travis was able to give about not only the aliens, but the spacecrafts and his his book he later writes, he goes into a ton more depth about how things smell and how they felt. And this was also in the 70s, too. So aliens weren't like a huge part of pop culture yet. There wasn't a ton of alien discussion. And you were considered like weird or whatever if you believed in extraterrestrials. I mean, I think in 2021, we can all agree there's enough evidence to prove the life of other beings not on Earth. Plus, it's just too wild to believe we're the only life in the whole universe. So yeah, like why would this group of lumberjacks make up this story for fame or whatever when they were actually scrutinized and accused of murder and just treated really poorly by the people in their town? I don't know. Let me know what you guys think because I'm really curious to know. If you're interested in this case and want to learn more, Travis Walton did write a book about his experience and this was actually where I got most of my information for this story. The book is titled Fire in the Sky, and there is a movie that was later made based off the book, also titled Fire in the Sky. And this is one of my all-time favorite movies. It came out in, I believe, 1993, and I remember watching it when I was, like, probably 10 years old, and I just remember being so fascinated with the story. I will say, although it is a great movie, and as far as the timeline of events go, the movie stayed very true to what actually happened, but it is more of a horror movie, so the alien abduction experience portrayed in the movie isn't very accurate to the actual events of Travis's abduction. Travis actually says he doesn't believe the aliens were bad or trying to test him or harm him or anything. Travis actually believes that when the spacecraft started up and he was zapped by that beam of energy, that that hurt him really bad, maybe even killing or almost killing him, and that the aliens took him to revive his health, to fix him, and to make sure he was okay. But yes, I love this story. I'm so glad I got to tell it. Please, please let me know what you guys think. I also thought it might be kind of fun to share the top 10 states for UFO sightings. And this is as of August 2021. And these are per year estimates. So number 10 is North Carolina at 2,629. Number nine is Illinois at 2,000. 
758. Number eight is Ohio at 3,012. And I live in Ohio. I've lived here my whole life. I have definitely seen some weird things in the skies here. So that is not surprising that we're on the top 10. Number seven is Arizona. And I'm honestly surprised that Arizona is not further up on the list, honestly. But they had an average of 3,188 sightings. Number six is Pennsylvania, 3,517. Number five, New York, 3,830. Number four, Texas, go figure, at 3,848. Number three, Washington, 4,351. Number two, Florida, 5,826. And number one, California, no surprise there, 10,333. So yeah, let me know what you guys think. If you aren't already following, uh, give the show a follow on Instagram at Creeped and Curious Podcast to keep up to date on episodes and this journey we have started together. I'll be back next week with another episode. Have a wonderful week and stay creepy.